Uh, Please pray with me. Uh, Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing in your sight. Uh, Lord, we, we make much that this is the word of the Lord, that these are like no other words, uh, but they are sharper than any two-edged sword and contain uh, a power to um, bring conviction, to affect repentance, to apply faith, to um, show us, Lord, either for the first time or in a fresh way, Jesus. We're here to see him. Uh, so, Lord, would you show us the greatness of the Savior through this passage, through this sermon, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. About 10 years ago, Daniel Day-Lewis won an Academy Award for playing Abraham Lincoln in the film Lincoln. And when he was done completing the film, he, he, was, a, he was interviewed, and he confessed in that interview that he felt a great sadness because he couldn't shake his connection to the character. He admitted, without sounding unhinged, I know I'm not Abraham Lincoln. I'm aware of that. But the truth is, the entire game is about creating an illusion, and for whatever reason, and mad as it may sound, some part of me can allow myself to believe for a period of time, without questioning, that I'm Abraham Lincoln. That's the trick. And then he paused and he said, maybe that's a terrible revelation about myself that one does feel able to do that. Now, it seems to me that what Daniel Day-Lewis imagines, you know, is a terrible revelation about himself is, in fact, you know, true of everyone. That, That whoever we are, you know, we have an immense capacity to create an illusion, to you know, as he put it, allow ourselves to believe for a period of time without questioning that I am something other or someone other than the Lord has made me to be. You know, that we, imagining that we can make a life for ourselves with ourselves as the main character. You know, but but, but what if, you know, what if we took a moment to reflect on the life we think we're building with ourselves or our family or our career or whatever at the center, you know, the dream that we're pursuing You know, what if we can look at that and just ask the simple question, is it true? I mean, dreams are great. You know, but I I, I think we would do well to take Dylan, you know, Bob Dylan's uh, wisdom that, you know, the only problem with dreams is in order to have them, you have to be asleep. I I recall asking a friend one time, we got in kind of a deep conversation, a non-Christian friend of mine, uh, and, you know, I asked him, I said, what do you think happens when we die? And he said, well, I believe that we'll be reunited with those we love, those who've died before us, we'll be free of pain. You know, we might have to pay for some of the wrongs we've done in life, but mostly, you know, if you've been a good person like I've tried to be, you'll be rewarded. And, you know, I kind of took that in. I said, well, where did, you know, just out of curiosity, where did you get that view? And he paused for a second. He said, well, sounds pretty good, doesn't it? (laughs) Sounds pretty good. We're turning to Mark 12 this morning, and we're right on the heels of Jesus coming not only into the city of Jerusalem, but really into its center, to the temple. In fact, he's standing right next to the temple in this passage. And and going there, you know, you might say he has stepped into the dream, the dream of God's people. That's, That's the locus of it. Certainly unrealized, imperfect, but the center of life for God's people, the place to which all the hopes were attached the place from which they felt they could build, 
you know, that glorious vision for what Israel would, 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 you know, come to be. And Jesus steps in there and disrupts it. Goes into that temple, turns over tables, knocks over cages of animals that were there to be sacrificed, even prevents people from even going into the temple to worship. You know, and the religious leaders rush over to him and they demand to know, by what authority are you doing these things? We looked at that passage last week. You know, and Jesus asked them this question about, you know, uh, was John the Baptist legit? And we'll talk about that in a second. And they couldn't answer it. But, but even before that whole interaction, you know, Jesus has already kind of been answering that question. He's been telling them by whose authority. He, he really begins when he comes into the city and when he approaches the temple and he gives them both a sign and a scripture. The sign comes when he comes upon a tree on the way to the temple. We looked at this passage a couple of weeks ago. It was a fig tree from far away. It looked good, healthy, fruitful. But Jesus gets closer up to it, pulls a few leaves back, closer inspection, and he finds out this is a sick tree. It'll never bear fruit. And so in Jesus' only destructive miracle in the entire Bible, he curses it and says, may no one ever eat from you ever again. And sure enough, they walk by it the next day, and it is dead to the roots. And that, again, that tree is a sign. It's a picture, emblematic of what the temple had become. Looks good from far away, man. Beautiful architecture, busy. Attendance numbers are great, packed with people. But you, upon closer inspection, pull back a few leaves, there is no life. And there is no hope for fruit. So he treats the temple kind of like he treats the tree. You know, except for what looks like nothing more than trashing the place, Mark tells us Jesus is teaching. Um, he complements the sign with Scripture. He combines Jeremiah and Isaiah. He teaches that the temple is to be a house of prayer for all the nations and not a den of robbers. And, and, and in saying that, he's saying, you know, this temple is not only not what it should be, it's everything it should not be. Like the fruit tree, the point of fig trees is figs, and the point of the temple is fruit. So as intense as Jesus' clearing of the temple was, it's important to point out, you know, that the people there did have an expectation from the book of Malachi that the Messiah would show up and cleanse the temple, that the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, that he'll be like a refining fire, he'll be like scrubbing soap, he'll rid it of corruption, and that'll be the signal that the kingdom is coming, except the expectation among the religious leaders and many others was that the Messiah would show up and clear the temple of Gentiles, but Jesus shows up and clears it for Gentiles. But since the temple was made as a house to be a house of prayer for all the nations, we find out that the problem isn't the rebellious outsiders, it is the religious insiders. Have mercy. God's plan was never to reject the nations with Israel, but to reach the nations through Israel. Not barring them from the temple, but bringing them to the temple to hear the good news. Put their faith in Yahweh. It was meant to be a light to the nations, not a lair for the religious. It's, that's, this is what church is supposed to be. Now, that's a little more review than I typically do, but it's really vital because we, we, we have no hope of understanding this parable without kind of going through that. And, and also, it's important to know that Jesus is still engaged with these same religious leaders who confronted him earlier. 
He's just refused to tell them by whose authority he does these things, but that doesn't mean he's not going to show them. And he shows them through this parable. And, and I want to look at this parable, you know, understanding that it is conveying to us four vital concepts for life in God. First is the reality of a divine relationship. Secondly is the reality of divine restraint. Thirdly is the reality of divine wrath. And finally, the reality of divine renewal. Relationship, restraint, wrath, renewal. It begins with a man planting a vineyard, putting a fence around it, digging a pit for the wine press, building a tower, one guy doing that. Now, you know, I get tired reading that. Um, if I manage to hit up Trader Joe's and the dry cleaners in one day, you know, I need a nap. But this begins with the account of this one guy doing all the work in building the vineyard all by himself. And as if that weren't enough, he does something else. He brings others in. And it's important to pay attention to who he brings in, the kind of people he brings in. What he doesn't do is staff it with employees or stock it with slaves. He leases it to tenants and then goes away to another country. What that means is that this whole vineyard operation is, is, is never conceived as something just for himself. It was conceived as that which was to be shared and enjoyed and benefited from by many, by certainly him and the, the lessees. It's what, you know, I know there's some real estate people in here. It's what you real estate people call a turnkey property. Walk up to the door, turn the key, and you walk in, and it's, there's the furniture, the Wi-Fi's running, everything. You just turn the key, walk in, and it's there for your use. That's the vineyard. The vineyard, in other words, represents much more than just hit, you know, the owner's personal resources. It represents a relationship. This whole thing is construed in a relationship. What, he constructs it, and the idea is that the tenants would care for it, have a stake in it, treat it as their very own, make it fruitful and thriving. It's very important to understand that, that relationship. You know, this is why I've never washed a rental car in my life. I have no stake in it. It doesn't belong to me. I, bought all the, I got all the insurance. Anything happens to it, who cares? <laughs> it's just this thing to use and be done with. But this place is different. It's built on relationship. It's entrusted to tenants. It's built for a kind of mutual thriving. Now, with all that said, there are servants in the story, and they're important to the story. Uh, the time comes with the, when the, you know, the harvest time comes, the owner sends a servant to the vineyard with the aim of bringing back a yield of fruit. I want to notice in verse 2, this is really critical, not all the fruit. You know, again, in an indication of the nature of the relationship, they go to get some of the fruit because they share in the yield. And, and this word servant is kind of more important than we realize at first. This is the same term used throughout the Bible in reference to the prophets God would send to his people. In Jeremiah 7, he, he uses the term servant as really a catch-all for every prophet the Lord has ever sent to Israel. And, and it, you know, you, you can just hear the echoes uh, of this passage in the parable where God says in Jeremiah 7, I have persistently sent all my servants, the prophets, to them day after day, yet they did not listen to me or incline their ear, but they stiffened their neck. Of course, you know, there were lots of prophets, lots of things to say over a long period of time, but in some way or another, all of them 
were about the business of calling people to contend with the reality and the nature of that divine relationship. So, so that, you know, in, so that when those messengers showed up, what's supposed to happen is everyone is reminded of or made aware of their relationship. They're moved to gratitude. They, they realize he's done all the heavy lifting. He's done all the hard work. He's created this place for us, for our thriving. He doesn't treat people as slaves. He's graciously given us a life that we can make fruitful to his glory and to our good. That's all been entrusted to us. But, you know, that's what should have happened. But tragically, it's not what happened. The history, in fact, was that with the sending of each servant, things get progressively worse. You see it in the parable. In a sense, the first parable represents all the, it's kind of the Jeremiah 7 summation, all the prophets that have ever been sent. And then you know, there's another servant who gets sent. You know, um, immediately beaten up, sent away. You know, and to, one degree, to one degree or another, this is how they were all treated. And I don't want to lose sight of how personal this is to Jesus. You might remember when he arrived in Jerusalem, Jesus wept over Jerusalem, wept over it as the place that kills the prophets, broke Jesus' heart. So then you get to this next servant, and his fate is similar. He's treated shamefully as well, except Jesus uses this pretty unique term in saying that he was struck on the head. Most scholars take this as a reference to how John the Baptist was treated. You know, the, the, one, the one whom Jesus says is the greatest prophet of all, the ultimate prophet, the forerunner, you know, struck on the head, beheaded. And, and, and that makes sense because John's been central to this whole discussion. Just before this, again, when, when the leaders challenged Jesus' authority, he turns the question around on them and asks what they thought about the authority of John the Baptist. You know, and they have their little huddle and they know people are watching, they don't want to say the wrong thing, they're being politicians, and, you know... We know that, you know, what to say about John, whether he's from the Lord or not. Privately, they rejected him. In front of everybody, they go, we don't know. So the first servant represents all of Israel's prophet. The second represents the ultimate prophet. And then in verse 5, you just find out that this treatment actually goes beyond the prophets. It applies to anyone who seeks to faithfully serve the Lord in their life. He says, you know, many others, some of whom they beat, some of whom they killed, you know, I mean, the history of Christian for people's, the history of the church has been one of people standing for the Lord and often paying a heavy price for that. Heavy. Jesus speaks to that here. So it's like Jesus is saying that when it comes to the treatment of God's servants, you know, I, count it, I can't even count how many times this has happened and how many people it has happened to. It has been going on forever. And... and and when you, when you step back and you see that, you realize this is about more than a divine relationship. This is a story of divine restraint. I mean, imagine yourself as a business owner, and your employees do this for 30 seconds. You are going to go in there with the wrath of God, right? This goes on forever. If you're tracking with the story, you've got to ask the question, how many of his servants must be brutalized by these tenants? How much humiliation must he endure? How much of the yield that rightly belongs to him must be denied before something is done? Enough. Not only are the servants treated unjustly, the owner is treated unjustly. 
And, and you've just kind of got to step back and look at that and go, how is it even possible to be this persistent, this patient? How is it possible to continue to have this relationship with this kind of people? What kind of heart can endure this? An answer begins to emerge in verse 6 when he, when, when he decides not to send his servants, but instead his son. And not merely a son, but with language that echoes of God the Father's words over Jesus at his baptism, his beloved son, his one and only son. Strikingly in that, uh, speaking over Jesus, not only his son, but listen to him. And critically, we're not only... We're not only um, told that he sent his son, but we're also told why. The translation I read from, you know, says that the owner has some reasoning and, uh, you know, that unlike the other servants, when the son shows up, they'll respect him. Now, you know, this is something, this is a richer concept than our kind of Aretha Franklin understanding of respect. The idea here is that when the son shows up, they would humble themselves. That considering the relationship of the father, uh, seeing that he is willing to put his own flesh and blood on the line, his own reputation, sending the son, there's some measure of humiliation in this. That seeing that the, that the father, the owner, the builder, is, you know, sends him that they would finally yield, finally stop the madness, that they would give him the honor he has deserved all along. And why does the owner hope that they'll do that? so that the relationship would be restored, so that they would render to him the yield of the vineyard that is his due, so that they would finally enjoy what they've denied themselves, fruitfulness and freedom and relationship. So respecting the son in that way is not only the right response, but given all that the father has done, given his grace and patience and long-suffering, it is the only sane response. And were anyone hearing the parable, and if Jesus just kind of stopped here and said, okay, I want you guys to fill in the rest of the story, they would say that when the sun shows up, it's repentance time. It's time to cast yourself upon the Father's mercy and to give him the honor that he's rightly due and to offer up whatever you could possibly do to make things right. Now, the parable proceeds, and, and, you know, but, but before you know, we get to what happens to the sun. Something else is important, uh, important is said here. Uh, before we find out what happens to the son, we learn about the hearts of the tenants and how far they are from the heart of the father. And, and you get your first window into it in the difference between what the father calls this final messenger and what the tenants call the final messenger. Father, I've already pointed out, calls him an heir or calls him the son and the tenants call him the heir. Um, the father uses the language of family. The tenants use the language of the law office. The father's heart is relational. The tenant's heart is transactional. So when the sh- son shows up, they reason. We get into the reasoning of the tenants as well. They reason, well, he's the heir. And if we kill him, the inheritance will be ours. And with that reasoning, we find out Their hearts are not merely distant from the Father. The Father has, in fact, become dead to them. Because if they believe the Father to be alive, killing the Son would be pointless for the simple reason that the Father lives and remains in full possession of His wealth and His property, whether the Son lives or dies. 
they don't see a son. They see an heir. They assume the wealth of this place has been passed on to him because after all this time, the father's been away in the far country. He's got to be dead by now. Tragically, it becomes clear that they never grasped the gracious heart of the father toward them. They never understood that they're not employees. They're not slaves. But occupied a world, though it wasn't built by them, was very much built for them. A world in which they could, in a very real sense, live in the household of the father. So, they respond to the father's last messenger like a slave rebellion, never accepting the invitation to participate in the life he has made for them, really as children. It goes from misguided to murderous. The son shows up. They not only beat him and send him away like they did the others, they kill him and further humiliating him, they leave him unburied. Jesus says they throw his body in the vineyard. For a long time, Jesus has been predicting this kind of treatment in his own life, his humiliation and his death. He's been telling his disciples about that. This parable marks the first time he's telling his detractors about it, telling them by whose authority he does these things and, and showing them the heart of the Father, showing them the full sweep of redemptive history up to this very moment and even beyond it. And at this point in the parable, I don't know if you feel it, I feel it when I read it, you know, you've got to ask the question. And Jesus puts voice to the question. I don't think exactly how we would, but he asks it in verse 9. He says, what will the owner of the vineyard do? The first thing to notice about that question is that it is one that forces us to take a perspective I don't think you or me readily take. And here's what I want to say. He doesn't say, what would you do in this situation? He says, what will God do? Like, I mean, let's set aside for a minute, you know, the, le the lens that I normally look through of self and me and my life and my goals and my kids and my time and my schedule and my ethical framework and my achievements and my family. And for a moment, look at life through the lens of the Lord. <laughs> Consider his perspective. And, you know, I'm asking you all here, just have an open mind. We love open minds in Santa Fe. Consider the, who's done all the heavy lifting. Consider who's made this place. Consider that you and I breathe an air that is perfectly balanced for our lungs. That we live in this place. That we're able to enjoy it. A place that he's made for us. That he's, that he's called us to relationship in him. To live with him in, in that relationship for our thriving for his good. And consider for a moment how readily marginal we make him. How readily we imagine, tell ourselves and others, that whatever good we have in life has come from us. My hard work, my discipline, my smarts, I've navigated well. How, you know, how, consider for a minute you know, how readily we not just turn from him, but on him. Consider how long-suffering and patient he continues to be, how forgiving, how tenacious he is in his pursuit of us all to the end that we would be brought into life-giving relationship with him. So, so Jesus, you know, Jesus in this parable is not saying, you know, I would like you, audience, to check out one more story so that you can decide whether or not this way of life works for your best life now. 
It's not what he's doing. He is challenging the entire concept of your life, your story, built around you. My story is the central story. He's asserting that whatever we are, whoever we are, whatever our story may be, it's part of this. The story of who God is and what he has done, what kind of heart he has, what kind of hearts we have, what he is doing and what he will yet do. And, and, you know, I know we're accustomed to describing faith in God as having a personal relationship with him. That's appropriate. That's true. But what is also true is that whether or not your faith is in the Lord, you've got a personal relationship with him, for good or for ill. That's what Jesus is saying. That's the question. Have you contended with that? Have I contended with that? My relationship with God, can you see that your story is part of this story? And I know it's subtle, but I think this is one of the reasons Jesus doesn't phrase this question as what should the Father do? Because that, again, would be to put it in such a way that, you know, we weigh on, we weigh in on what we think the behavior of the sovereign God of the universe ought to be. But it's not our place to say. This is the time to cover the mouth. To, to acknowledge and recognize he is the owner and the builder and the sustainer of the world in which we live, and he will do as he pleases. So he asked, what will the owner of the vineyard do? Jesus doesn't wait for an answer, but he answers his own question in the second half of verse 9. He says, no more servants will be sent. Owner of the vineyard will come back to that place that he built and exact long overdue justice on the tenants of the vineyard. And this is the only answer to Jesus' question that makes any sense at all. And, and I want to point out, you know, that's probably where the parable should end. Verse 9. And yet, thank you, Jesus. <laughs> Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Doesn't end there. And, and I want to say in a parable that is shot through with shocking injustices, you know, um, at the risk of kind of committing a little heresy here, I want to say there's one more great injustice. But it's, you know, it's, it's an injustice that works to our good. It's the kind of injustice I suspect some parents are familiar with. You know, in raising our kids, it was often the case that our kids demanded fairness. You're not being fair. Be fair. And, and I, you know, there were certainly times where they were spot on. We were wrong. We needed to listen we needed to reconsider, repent, change our ways as parents. Absolutely. But then there were other times when, when you look at your kids and you go, oh, no, you don't want fairness. You don't want raw justice. There's something so much better for you, so much better than fairness and justice. There's grace. We live by grace. The man in the parable is a father. And when you ask the question, what kind of heart is this? The answer is it's a father's heart. If it were a boss's heart, a foreman's heart, uh, or something else, a heart committed to plain fairness, to raw justice, the parable would end with destroying the tenants and giving up on this whole vineyard thing. But gloriously, what should be a story of retribution becomes one of redemption. The vineyard project should have been dead and buried, but it is not. 
He holds true to his original plan and his purpose for the vineyard to have tenants and participants and partners in the work. That the vineyard would be fruitful. So he gives it to others. He brings it into outsiders. My house will be a house of prayer for the nations, right? Now, you know, I realize, you know, some of us may still be wondering, what do, you, what do we make with a story like this? What do we, how do you have a story that puts together wrath and redemption? And I think Jesus is aware of the quandary, so he answers the question with this quotation from Psalm 118. This, incidentally, this is the same psalm they were chanting when Jesus came into the city, chanting from verse 26, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And Jesus goes back to that psalm, but a little bit earlier, as if to say, you want to know who your blessing that's coming to you? Let me tell you. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. And when it's, then it becomes clear how wrath and redemption go together. Because this is, the, is worthy of the hosannas. This is the stone that even though it doesn't fit into the self-made, self-determined life that I'm building for myself, you know, that I may, you know, with that outlook and that way of living, I hold it up and I go, this is unfit for my way of living and moving and having my being in the world around me. That kind of, when, when you look at it that way, you throw that stone on the scrap heap. And yet, this same stone is perfect for what God's doing and inviting us into. It is, it is perfect for his true and enduring project of what he is building through his church, not just through, for his glory, but for our good. And, and, and not just perfect for it, essential to it. This isn't a paving stone. It's not another brick in the wall. This is the cornerstone. This is, this is the, the stone upon which the whole structure is built and the stone upon which the whole structure depends. So that were you to take it out, the whole thing falls apart. That's why we want to be a gospel-reliant, gospel-relishing church, never getting over the good news of Jesus. Jesus is the story of how wrath and redemption come together. He's the son the Father sent to the place he's made and designed for our thriving to be in relationship with him. If I can put it this way, in partnership with him, that, that, that we would bear much fruit, not merely laboring for him, but lavishing in him. Glory to him, good to us. But of course, when Jesus came, he wasn't respected. He was humiliated and killed and discarded like a worthless, ill-fitting stone, a threat to the project. And yet he stands as the center and support of an entirely new structure. It's interesting, I mentioned earlier, as Jesus is saying this, he's standing next to the temple. And he's, he's urging them in a sense not merely to turn from, merely to turn from the temple, but to turn to him as the temple, the true temple, the truer, greater, more glorious living temple for God's people, the, the, the truer and greater temple of which this great structure that he's standing next to is a mere shadow one that will be destroyed and raised again in three days, but one that will forever stand as the place of full access for everyone to the Father, as a, as a house of prayer for all the nations. I don't want to miss the last part of the psalm. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. There's an invitation to see things in a new way, to put on a different lens. 
Can we see through that lens? Not, not the lens of, of what the self might do, but the lens of what the sovereign God has done. The old Puritans used to call this putting on gospel spectacles. You got to do that. Put on the gospel every day. It's the gospel. It's, it's looking at life and going, I should have been an object of wrath. Should have been destroyed. But that's, that story, that my story that should have been one of wrath has become for me one of redemption. Story of God's wrath, not merely from turning from him, but, but in fact, my story is one of turning on him. That becomes the story of God's own son coming to us and, and allowing that wrath to fall on him so that we might be redeemed. This comes when we respect the son. When he shows up and we repent and believe and receive so that ours becomes that story of redemption. This is God's story, and it is so much better than my story, way better than my life movie, way better than my show about nothing. And even as it's complete in Jesus, it's one he continues to write in the lives of those who would trust him. You know, so, so if you're hearing this for the first time, if you're considering the gospel, please don't let the story end with verse 9 for you. Please partake of this miracle of grace. Know the Father's heart. The Son has come, and, and I want to say he continues to show up, graciously disrupting the dream, graciously di disrupting our busyness. And, you know, my best life now, turning over those tables, thank you, Lord, with something better, an offer to build a life on him. And in fact, it's my conviction, and I believe this to be true, that, that, that this is what he loves to do each and every Sunday here. To, to come, to be present and at work through his word and the worship, to either for the first time or in a fresh way call us to respect the Son, to receive the Son, that, 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 that he would know that we would know and enjoy the Father's heart for us, that we would receive him and relish his gospel and rely on him for our life, that that would get into our careers and our families and everything, that there would be thriving in that whole vineyard he's made for us. This is the Lord's doing in Jesus Christ and is marvelous in our eyes. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for sending the Son. Thank you for taking the full measure of wrath that was due to us for not merely turning from you but on you for assuming this is our this is my world and I'm living in it lord thank you for sending the son thank you that because he has taken that wrath there is not one ounce left over for me and i thank you that he has fulfilled all righteousness for me that when our faith is in him you know, not only do all our F's get taken away, but we get all Jesus' A's. We not only get access, we get adoption. We, we become something even greater than tenants. We become sons and daughters in the Father's house by faith. Thank you. Thank you that the life you have for us is so much better. And it's not, it's not like we leave the life we're living. It's that the life that we live, whatever you have called us to, becomes richer and fuller because we look at it through the lens of grace, through the lens of the gospel. Lord, what do we do that? Help us. We're pitiful. We can't do this on our own. We need the Holy Spirit to do it. And we need to be fed at this table. So as we come, would you feed us? Would this not just be some empty ritual? Um, but would we take in 
what it means that we are not marching up here making resolutions, that we're not marching up here, you know, imagining if we, have a, if we had a good week, you know, we deserve to be here. If we had a bad week, we don't deserve to be here. Lord, we, we come here um, not in our own righteousness, but wrapped in Christ, thankful that the work is finished and what is left for us is food. And not just food, but a feast. This table is a foretaste of the great feast we will have when we sit at Jesus' table, when every tear will be dried, when sin will be no more, when we will be there in person with our beautiful Savior toasting, drinking the finest of wine, eating the richest of fare. Because it, we... Um, because you were gracious to bring us into the story. Thank you. Would you attend to us as we come in Jesus' name? Amen.